Welcome back, everybody. I hope you had a little bit of movement during that break between the sitting and this talk. And I'm just going to, again, as we have at other talks, see if it's possible for you to turn your camera on, even for a while. It's really great to see you, see who's in there. I'm going to look through. Hello, everybody. Nice to see you. I'm seeing so many of the people, um, you know, that we've had in these groups. And I'm sure by this time now you're seeing people from the groups. And these groups are really uh, quite moving for me. Uh, today, I'll be sharing stuff that is definitely... Um, colored by, shaped by what has gone on in the groups, especially there was some stuff today that was was in the group. And uh, so I hope this sharing, it, it, it became it's quite personal about me and it happened because of what was coming out in the group. I hope it will serve you on your journey. I'm going to fiddle with my camera just a little bit there. I have an interesting camera. It has a mind of its own and it will pop up and show the ceiling if I don't watch out. All right, so invite you to feel present in your posture. And I'm going to start with a really well-known quote from the Buddha that many of you have probably heard. So if you hear the first couple words and you think, I know that, I've heard that, rather than tune it out, Listen as though you'd never heard it before, or as it was as though it was going, you're really going to get the depth of what this is. So the Buddha once said, Love yourself and all beings as a caring mother would love her only child. So let that reverberate a little in a fresh way. So when you hear it, this is a really uh, tender human image, isn't it? The archetype of the caring mother that the Buddha is calling on is, it's the archetype of the unconditionally nourishing, nurturing, loving mother. It doesn't mean that's how every mother is all the time, but that's the archetype that's being called on. So just notice how it is to hear that, to take that in and realize the Buddha 2,500 years ago is saying, love yourself like this. And we can wonder, you know, how much of my time uh, each day, each month do I actually meet myself with that quality of tenderness. Um, I'm going to say it again. I'm going to let the Buddha shorten it a little shorter. And I want you to imagine that the Buddha, and if for you it, the Buddha isn't the one, it may be Mary or some great wise being, imagine they look right at you with love into your eyes and say your name first, and then they say, love yourself as a caring mother 
would love her only child. So that's the way I was introduced to this teaching in the mid-1970s. And I very distinctly remember it. I remember who said it, and I remember what I thought, which was, for me, at that time, I was in my middle 20s, and my first thought was just, that's not possible for me, no way. I was just so mired in my own unworthiness and self-judgment and just, you know, not good enoughness that I could not imagine ever meeting myself with that quality of love. So um, I I felt like I didn't deserve it. That kind of, it came down to that. So I'm grateful to the person who was my teacher then, Stephen Levine, because he, uh, I was telling him about all this and he said, kind of in the late 1970s, he said, Deborah, you really need to do meta loving kindness for yourself every day for at least 20 minutes. <clears throat> You'll be glad you did it. So what I didn't say to him, but what I thought was, oh God, please don't make me do that of everything. I, I really don't like that practice. In fact, I kind of hate that practice because when I do it, as Jane mentioned the other day, I didn't feel love. I, I either felt nothing or I felt all kind of judgment unless it was being guided by a teacher at a retreat. <clears throat> but what I did say to him was, well, I'm already doing, sitting, you know, with positive mindfulness every day. Could I just continue with that? And he said, yes, continue with that and uh, do metta for yourself every day for at least 20 minutes. So I had a lot of trust for Stephen and there was something in his heart that I wanted to find in my heart. So I said, okay, I'll try this for a while. So then went home from the retreat day after day, month after month, I kept doing this thing, dredging through my, this experience that was not in any way easy or comfortable for me. And uh, went back to the next retreat, which was the only access I had to meeting or talking with Stephen at that time. And I went back and told him, and he said, keep going. So, oh God, you know, more months. Now we're past a year every day, feeling nothing when I'm doing it myself or, or worse. Uh, go back to another retreat. I tell him again, you know, I think he's going to say, you know, maybe you should not do this. It's not a good practice for you. And what he does is he laughs and he says, he says, you know, I, I Stephen remember when I could feel love for every being in the universe except one. And isn't it a strange coincidence that of all the whole universe, the one being undeserving of love just happens to be myself? And we laughed. And then he really said it again. He said, Deborah, keep going. Don't give up on this. Don't give up on yourself. So, okay, now we're into uh, a year two years, I'm a really slow learner here, a few years into this, and I'm not making this up. I was so frustrated. One day I, I went over to my Zafu and instead of sitting on it, I hit it with my fist and I wasn't going to sit on that Zafu. And I went over and I, my rebellion was to sit on the couch. 
I sat down on the couch and I said to the universe, no matter how long this takes me, even if I'm still doing this every day, 10 years from now, even if I'm still doing this on my deathbed, I am not going to give up on learning how to love. And for whatever reason, and don't try it, it's not like a magic wand that will work. It was just something that happened. That day, this enormous opening occurred in my whole heart, body, mind. And there was the boundless love, boundless joy, love for all beings, including this being. And then there was actually months of a kind of lightness of being and a sense of of a kind of freedom that followed that. That didn't mean that that was now taken care of for the rest of my life. I still had to practice, but it never got as bad as that first few years. And I have to tell you that, uh, you know, I, I struggled hard with that practice, excuse me. <clears throat> and it turned into my favorite practice because of this experience and because of what happened in the following years, because I have kept practicing it all these years. And so now, decades later, I have taught this practice to thousands of Dharma students and psychotherapy clients. And I can admit to you that there isn't anyone who I've ever met who <laughs> was as slow to allow love in as I was. I, who knows how that happened, but I, I've never heard a story like that one. What usually happens, what's common, is that there's just a kind of gradual opening, a kind of up and down. Some days it's open, some days it's closed. Over the years, it's, it gets stronger. Sometimes it retreats or you know something like that. It's, it's really strong or sometimes it's really, really gone for a few weeks and comes back. But... Uh, that was my story of how it started. So because it's so different for so many people, I want to also just tell you a little short story about a middle-aged woman who came to a women's retreat I was leading. She'd never been to a retreat. And she, at that retreat, learned metta. And at that retreat, she realized that would be um, good for her to do that every day. So she went home and started doing that every day. And in several months, five or six months, I got an email from her. And in her email, she said, I'm surprised by the power of being kind to myself every day. For the first time, I accept myself as I am. That's a big thing. She said, the biggest surprise is that I get along better with my two housemates and my three sisters. So she got it quick. <laughs> she opened quickly and she had this, it's a profound thing to accept ourselves as we are for even a few minutes. So we can hear this thing that sounds, it's so, we hear it so commonly said now, it's almost like a, you know, California cliche which is that as we accept ourselves, we can accept others. And it, 
it is a cliche, it's, it's just true, that as we make more room in ourself for all of our humanness, there becomes more space, more room for others to also be human. So I'm going to now tell yet another really different story. This happened several years ago with a man who I would have considered a young man, but when he was writing this, came to me as a note. Uh, he referred to him, he starts at, when I was younger, I had a powerful experience on psychedelic mushrooms. My usual self was long gone, and I experienced myself as everything, everywhere, connected in love. I did years of Buddhist meditation practice trying to find the way out of the box of my separate self. I dismissed metta meditation because it seemed to centralize in the personal psychological self I was trying to transcend. But it was guided each day at a retreat I was attending, so I did it. One afternoon, I felt love for my, for my box of separation rather than trying to get rid of it. That expanded to forgiveness and love for my parents and grandparents and all their well-intended boxes. The love kept expanding until it filled and connected everything, everywhere. No self. Love was my bridge from separation to oneness. So metta, love, learning to love ourselves, connects to joy. It can connect to great uh, openings, the, some of the deepest truths. And of course, if we practice over years, over decades, um, practice evolves and we, we evolve. So I'm going to continue on with my personal metta sharing. Um, I had a small yet very close family. And my brother and I, even into our early 40s, would travel down to Southern California and be with my parents for the holiday season. We, both of us, lived in Northern California. And uh, even when my brother was dying of AIDS, we made this pilgrimage. It was quite something. And then in the early 1990s, um, all three of this small family, my brother, mother, then father, all died within a period of a few years, which was obviously really hard. And the very hardest time for me was around the holidays. I would literally start dreading Christmas in about June and figuring out how I could somehow avoid this season. Um, that went on for a few years. But that was many, many years ago. And now, all these years later, um, you know, I have this wonderful community of friends and extended family. And I'm super fortunate that we um, have all these sort of wild and crazy gatherings of the holidays, a lot of irreverent games and singing and dancing and connecting and um, 
so the holidays have become again this really rich and love-filled time for me and i'm grateful so then came last december i'm sure most people remember the covid winter um my husband and i were in a little pod but as 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 we moved into december if you're remembering what was happening after thanksgiving as we were moving into the holidays the pod unraveled cuz people just couldn't figure out how to keep each other safe and then as the days of december went on every day another gathering got canceled one after other until of course there was nothing and my husband and i had this time off but we knew now that we would not be seeing any other people in person so now it's about the i don't know 17th or 18th of december of last 6 months ago and i noticed that i was kind of feeling this heavy kind of my husband called it dour sort of feeling which isn't my norm and so around the 17th or 18th of december i thought well I'll I'll just sit with this. I'll practice what I preach and I would just sit with this kind of heavy feeling. So I sat down late in the afternoon to just be with it. And it was not a big surprise to me that as I just sat being present as we have today with the sensations, with the feelings, allowing it to be what it was. It was only a few minutes before there was this sorrow for the hundreds of thousands of people dying of covid in the worldwide people dying worldwide and the hundreds and thousands of families who were not able to be with their loved one as they were sick hospitalized and dying and simultaneously there was this news coming out about the inequities about really who was being most hard hit communities of color again being so unequally hit by this so the whole thing i was sitting there and this whole thing was was heavy was was sorrow and that wasn't a big surprise to me what was a bit of a surprise was as i got closer into that place of sadness there was that old familiar loneliness and grief about my family that had died so long ago i hadn't had those feelings for over 20 years but there they were and so you know it was the whole thing was just bringing that up so as i sat there with all of this uh loss grief pain and as it as the full impact of it started really sort of crushing in on me simultaneously something really beautiful and unexpected happened something i didn't make happen this warm compassionate presence just came and encircled and enveloped and filled me as i felt all this sorrow and loss simultaneously here's this loving presence so again i did not 
practice metta at that moment. I wasn't, I wasn't applying the antidote to the pain, the, the antidote to the suffering is the compassion. I, I didn't do that. The antidote arose by itself. It showed up in response to the suffering in a, in a really powerful way. It showed up as mercy, as compassion for all the beings suffering and for myself. And I noticed as I sitting there, I didn't feel alone or lonely anymore. I actually felt really connected to everyone. And it's, you know, close to the winter solstice here in our global north, it, it gets dark really um, early. And I, as I was sitting there, like, I don't know, 5, 5.30 or something, it had become completely dark. So by the time I opened my eyes, it, I was just sitting in a completely black room, completely dark. And I sat there and it was, was silent in that room. And I sat there and it was, I experienced the darkness as so softly beautiful. It was like part of this enveloping holding. And as I just sat there in the dark, this quiet joy just opened through my whole body mind. And I just, I just sat as though, I think I was probably smiling. I felt like my cells were just quietly smiling, sitting there doing absolutely nothing in the dark. And I, I had such a good time doing this that I actually invited my husband. I said, do you want to sit with me in the total dark tomorrow night? He laughed. He said, okay, I'll give it a try. We ended up sitting in the dark with no lights, no sound, every evening for a couple of weeks. I did every evening. He did many of the evenings. And this might sound strange, but it was the most joy-filled, love-filled holiday season ever for me. My husband and I joked about doing this. He says, boy, we're really wild party animals now, aren't we? So... I'm sharing this because um, it has some really important lessons for me to digest, to learn, to take in. And I hope they can be valuable for you if I can unpack them. The first one is really who or what was that presence that showed up and met me and held me? Did it come from out there somewhere? So our true nature is like a sun. It's inside of everyone and it shines through every heart as love, as joy, as equanimity, as wisdom. And of course we know we don't always experience this sun-like nature because there you could call clouds, obscurations can come made of all kinds of conditioning or trauma or is so many different 
things that make these clouds, attachments, aversions. And so they, they seem to obscure this sunlight-like nature, but our true nature is always in there. It doesn't go away just because we lose touch with it. So when we're practicing mindfulness or metta and or metta, we're not creating or, or making love or joy, as James said the other night. We are uncovering our nature that's already right here. When we're doing these practices, we're not collecting goodness points that we gather up to become good. We are uncovering the innate goodness. We're reconnecting with innate goodness that's our deepest nature. So the joy that I felt during this last holiday season didn't come from crazy fun parties and singing and dancing and being with my loved ones. It was uncovered as I sat with sorrow and as the sorrow was met in compassion. So I have a, a bit of a roomy poem part of a Rumi poem to share with you. He says, work. Keep digging your well. Don't even think about getting off of work. Water is there somewhere. Submit yourself to a daily practice. Your loyalty to that is a ring in the door. Keep knocking, and the joy inside will eventually open a window and look out to see who's there. I can always trust Rumi, huh? So if someone had told me, told the 25 or 30-year-old Deborah way back then that I would meet myself with this loving warmth, uh, this presence, you know, I would have said to them, you've got the wrong person. It's just not possible here. I really believe that for a while. But I want to give myself some credit. And I want to give a lot of credit to Stephen Levine, which is that neither one of us gave up. What I did, the Rumi said, keep knocking. And eventually the door will open. So what I did, because of Stephen encouraging me, is I just kept knocking. And eventually the door did open. So um, another important lesson for me and for all of us, I think, in that experience that I talked about, is about letting go. The... um, the Buddha, you may have heard this. It's, I bet a lot of you have heard that the Buddha said the first noble truth is that there is suffering. There's a lot of suffering in this life. There's 
sickness, there's old age, there's death. And then he goes on to the second noble truth. And he says, the cause of the suffering isn't the fact that everything is impermanent, which it is. The cause of the suffering is that we attempt to grasp, to hold on to that which is impermanent, that which is destined to change. And we hold on to the impermanent, trying to get lasting happiness. And in that, we get, we experience what's called suffering. It's painful to want something that, that can't be there. We all know this. Or trying to hold on to that perfect brand new shiny car and have it never get dent, dented. Uh, so the Buddha goes on to the third noble truth. And he said, I'm sorry, someone is, is outside waving at me. Excuse me. I'm sorry for that, my dear husband, who is seeming to need my attention. Okay, so the, the Buddha went on to the third noble truth, and he said that, yes, even if this, um, this tight fist of grasping is what causes suffering, then it's in the opening, the letting go, that we experience the greatest joy, the greatest freedom. Opening and letting go. So, um, I have a friend. She's about 65. And two months ago, she got her very first brand new car in her life. And it's shiny and it's pretty and it's perfect. And it's electric and she loves it. And she's a mindfulness teacher. And she knew, and she was being a little obsessive about keeping it perfect, but she and her wife were doing a lot of joking about it. So she would say to her wife, don't even breathe on my new car. Don't get any dust. Don't put a fingerprint on my new car. And the wife would, they were kind of joking, but they were playing with the fact that my friend really was pretty <laughs> intensely needing this car to stay perfect. So her wife would sort of say, I'm not even getting close to that car. I won't even wear my shoes in the car. You know, I will, I will never breathe in the car. You know, so they were having fun playing with, with the new car. I think you know where this is headed. So they walk out of the grocery store five days after she got the brand new shiny car. And the, there's a gash that goes from the front end through both doors to the back end. And it also, uh, it's not a little scratch. <laughs> it peeled off the molding. It's a big gash. And they both just stood there, you know, kind of nobody said anything. And then together, they both just cracked up. Some tension broke and because they, they could, had been already knowing that they were playing the edge here of grasping and it just cracked up. And my friend later said, you know, it was kind of a relief to be out from under the tyranny of the perfect car, the suffering the suffering of, of wanting it to stay that way. So sometimes um, the letting go that the Buddha is referring to is, is some of some stuff, you know, some things, something outer. 
but the the letting go that leads to this release this the great happiness that he refers to is an inner letting go and what we are ultimately letting go of is our attachment our identification with our story of who we think we are and how we think it's all supposed to be and i don't know about you but we all have a lot of how we really think it's supposed to be so last december as long as i was holding on to how it used to be or how i wanted or you know my family or whatever that's a form of suffering of sorrow so the presence the loving presence that met me was also wise and it actually talked to me because it's been trained to talk as as jane has been speaking over these evenings and it said things like this is really painful this is the hard part about human love we cherish our dear ones we hold them near to us and then we will have to someday let them go and the voice said um we it's okay to grieve and let go and that's wisdom it's okay to grieve and let go so i i grieved and i let go for the time being i'm not pretending it's gone forever since it came back after 20 years but for the time being i let go of the story of how it used to be so i want to say the i couldn't make that let go that release happen um sometimes a letting go happens through insight through just seeing clearly this is grasping we see it in something and it re- releases um a really useful way to cultivate to get better at letting go is to learn it through our bodies in fact right this moment you can notice just be aware you don't have to change your position at all um notice if there's just some subtle little micro tension anywhere in your body your jaw your tongue or your belly and just soften just relax take a moment and just let go physically feel your body mind heart just open as you just practice softening so the body can remind the mind and sometimes the mind can remind the body how to let go so when i was in that whole thing in december the letting go happened when um my little suffering ego was met with compassion as james said the other day our egos are like little 
toddlers who um, maybe wake up at night and they're crying and upset. And if the caring parent comes or caregiver comes and holds them and reassures them and rocks them and loves them, if it's a not traumatized child, generally they can regulate, they can settle, and they can relax and melt back into that warm embrace of their of their loved one. So as we learn to love ourselves as a caring mother would love her only child, we are learning to help this process of letting go happen. And it is a learning for most of us. I haven't met anybody where oh, they just naturally know how to do that. There may be so in other cultures, but I don't know of them. When we are, these, our little egos are upset and contracted like a little, you know, animals in their fight and flight situation, when we meet them with this caring, this kindness, there's an opening and we can melt, relax, open, and melt back in to our deeper, wiser nature. And as we do this, from the contracted state to the open, melting back, reconnected, over and over, again and again, a shift can start to happen. And the shift is going from this solidness of the separate ego identity to beginning to identify with this larger, wiser, more loving self. Our dear friend Ramdas says, the spiritual journey is a journey toward simplicity, toward quieting, toward a kind of joy that is not in time. It's a journey that takes us from primary identification with ego to identifying with our soul or true nature. And ultimately, it takes us beyond identification. So you may know of or have heard of Ramdas. Um, he was a, a teacher and inspiration, a guide to millions of people. He died a year and a half ago, millions, including James and Jane and I. Um, <clears throat> And you may know he had a massive stroke 20-some years ago. And at that time, he had to let go. He had to let go of his eloquence. He, he got aphasia, very limited, very, very limited speech. He had to let go of his mobility. He lived in a wheelchair with the use of only one side of his body. He had to let go of being an independent person. He had to let go of so much. He lived with a lot of physical pain and uh, recurrent infections. So I asked him once when I was there visiting, you know, Ramdas, tell me how 
you deal with this because he was so radiant and joyful. It's like, how are you dealing with this, all this discomfort? And he said, I practice loving it all. And his words, you know, are slow and they come out one at a time. So um, in the last 10 or 12 years of his life, he just became this beacon of, of love and joy and wisdom, just incredible. Um, and one of the times I was visiting him, he was going to be giving a um, talk, a talk at a big conference. And I was going along partly just to go along. And also I wanted to see how does a person with aphasia give a talk? <laughs> well, no problem. Uh, he didn't need to worry about the words because he's just transmitting so much this, this radiance, you know, very much like a sun. So at one point um, he's with his few words sitting in his wheelchair in front of this, it's hundreds of people. And he says, um, you are joy. You are joy. And he's beaming. He says it again. You are joy. And at some point, this group of all these psychologists, many of whom didn't have a background with Ramdas, started chanting with him. They're just chanting, joy joy and the room just lit up everything was sparkling people were laughing saying joy joy and he was laughing and then if that wasn't already pretty amazing um all these people all of them stood up and a whole bunch of them had their arms out stretched out and they started just randomly yelling out, we love you, Ramdas. Thank you, Ramdas. We love you. And others were saying, joy, joy. And, and the room really went berserk. You know, it was just this infectious, contagious joy. And, and it was fun. And Ramdas is just sitting there laughing and beaming. And with his one good hand, he's slapping his leg, which was his way of clapping and and uh, it was just a, a bath, a, a fountain of, of joy. So I share that with you. It's such a great memory for me. And I have a lot of these memories with him. Uh, they just are all lighting up. I want to tell you all these stories, but I won't go over. Um, I tell it because I have so much gratitude that Ram Dass showed us right in front of us, before our eyes. This was all completely public. His whole adult life was all out there. Um, all his neurosis, all his process, his loss of faith, his everything it went through, the healing from the stroke, and this unbelievable victory of his freedom at the end, the last 10 or so years. He showed us what is possible if we can let go of our attachments to how we think it's supposed to be and open to how it really is. He let go and he became pure joy, pure love, pure service, just in service to um, so many people. So, gosh, I see what time it is. Um, 
as I am at this stage of sharing this with you, I see that these are stories about some of the possibilities uh, in in uh, loving yourself. Um, but I'm also really seeing that these stories, especially when I think about Ram Das, but also that story I told about me and Stephen, they're about the gift of practice that if we even on the days the hindrances are all happening and we think, oh, what am I doing here? And how is this ever going to work? Or will it work? And all that stuff. If we just keep going, um, as Rumi says, the keep knocking and the door will open. Today in a small group, a woman said she, she had been having a good time and then she had this big hindrance uh, thing. Today was perfect timing because Booker had talked about it. And in the, she was wondering, you know, what am I doing? Should I stay here? And she thought of this really powerful one-word teaching from Pema Children for when things get rough. And the one-word teaching was stay. Just stay. You want to go? You want to get away from the discomfort? Just stay. And she did. And she was grateful. And she had moved on. That, that attack had passed. So I will finish this uh, with, I think I'm just going to read this Rumi poem to you again. I'll read more of it. You know, these Rumi poems, some of them are really long. In the early morning hour, just before dawn, Lover and beloved wake and take a drink of water. She asks, do you love me or yourself more? Really, tell me the absolute truth. He says, there's nothing left of me. I'm like a ruby held up to the sunrise. Is it, a, is it still a stone or a world made of redness? It has no resistance to sunlight. The ruby and the sunrise are one. Be courageous. Discipline yourself. Keep work. Keep digging your well. Don't think about getting off from work. There's water there somewhere. Submit yourself to a daily practice. Your loyalty to that is a ring on the door. Keep knocking, and the joy inside will eventually open a window and look out to see who's there. So with that, I thank you for your attention. I wish you love for yourself and the letting go when, when things need to be let go of. So, um, I'm just going to scroll through these pages to take a look. You know, I think since we have a minute, I want to encourage you also to take a look. Look at these people. Do what someone had us do. Scoot up close and look and see each other. And what you'll see 
you'll start seeing people like I am from your groups. And notice that connection you have. And then realize that, oh, there's the people that are not in my group. Have the same connection. So then just pick somebody. Let's pick someone who we've never met, who's not in our group. Just pick anybody. They'll never know. And look. I'm finding. Okay, there's one. Look at one person. Just look into them as though your heart is looking right into their heart. As you see them, I may or probably don't know you, but I wish you well. I wish you happiness and joy. May you love yourself as a caring mother loves her only child. Okay, then just bow to whoever you've just been wishing well to. And now it's the beginning of a, a break. Some of you will be beginning of bedtime on the East Coast. Others will be having a dinner break. And we'll be back at 7 o'clock for more Guided Metta with Jane. Thank you. <laughs>